church, today we conclude our section in Romans chapters 9 through 11. So if you want to begin turning in your Bibles, you can certainly do that. We will also have the words up on the screen. And just to kind of give some recap of kind of what we've been trying to do and just where we're going, you may be thinking, Pastor, I'm a little bit tired of looking at Romans, but uh, just to, to, to settle you a little bit, we've, we've looked at chapters 12 through 16. We started backwards. We then went to Romans 9 through 11, and we spent some time there articulating and, and understanding of this response of, of why there were some Jews who were uh, rejecting the gospel and why some were receiving it. And in there we see election and, and how God is working and chosen to work in the world and, and really ultimately how God's redemptive plans for the world, uh, nothing can get in the way of what God is doing in the world. And the, the, even the unbelief of Jews, it was a part of God's plan to bring in Gentiles. And so today we're finishing up in chapter 11, and then next week we're going to jump in on Mother's Day. We're going to jump in with chapter 1, and we're going to spend seven weeks in chapters 1 through 4, and then kind of we'll take a break during the summer. Then after Labor Day, we will conclude with chapters 5 through 8. And so we're going to have some other things that I'll be preaching on the end of July and the 1st of August that I'm excited about and what the Lord is doing and opening up opportunities for our church. But just so you know that we're not going to be in Romans for like the next two years, but we're going to have about 15 more weeks going through the book of Romans. But I hope, I hope um, it truly has been, been something where we can study God's word and to look at it and to see all that God is doing and what we can learn from that. When I was in the sixth grade, I had a set of Oakleys. They weren't my Oakleys. My grandmother, uh, she's probably watching this right now online, and she's going to call me after this sermon, but she had a set of Oakleys, and she was a really cool grandmother, still is, but she would have Oakleys, Oakley sunglasses, and that's what she wore all the time, and occasionally she would leave them at our house, and it was always a mad dash to see who could wear grandma's glasses before she showed back up to pick them up, and well, I found them, and I put them on, and I was outside mowing the grass, and one of my brothers, who was uh, a little bit older than me, not my oldest brother, but the one below him, he came, and he wanted to wear them, and he took them from me. Now, as a sixth grader, and he was about a senior in high school, I, I fought as best I could, but he won, and he took those glasses from me. And I was so mad, I went inside, and I did something. I was so angry at my brother because I couldn't do anything. I wanted these sunglasses. I wanted to wear them, and I punched the wall. Now, one of two things could have happened when I punched a wall. Either one, you hit a stud and you break your hand or hurt yourself, or you put a hole through the wall. And I put a hole through my bedroom wall. And this, the moment my hand went through that wall, the fear of God came over me because I knew what was about to happen once my parents found out that I just punched a hole through the wall. Now, I did what all good sixth graders likely would do. Now, I wouldn't encourage you to do this, but I had a pennant of toy hornets above where I punched, and this wasn't just a coincidence, and I thought for a moment, well, I'm just going to unpin that and pin it over where I put a hole in the wall. Some of y'all laugh. Y'all would have done the same thing, too, at that point. I didn't want to get in trouble. I knew what was going to happen to me, so I just covered that hole in the wall, and then I didn't tell anybody. And then at some point, I received something else from my parents. It was another banner, and I put it over that pennant. So there's two things now covering over 
the hole in this wall. And I went all the way through college before I eventually, the statute of limitations had run out at that point. I wasn't in their house anymore. I, I couldn't get in trouble. It, it was after that fact, almost seven, eight years after I put a hole in the wall that my parents found out. It's actually still in that wall. They, they live somewhere else and they come back to the house that I grew up in occasionally. But that hole is still there. There's actually now just a, a piece of furniture over that. So there's three things masking the hole in this wall. At some point, if they ever sell the house, someone's going to have a hole that they're going to have to repair. But it's, it's funny. As I think about that story and I think about my friend, I remember as, as if it were yesterday, this feeling that I had that, one, I need to hide what I just did. I can't tell somebody. So much that I had contrived a plan to cover it up and then to cover it up again. And it's the funny thing about what sin does to us in our life, isn't it? That we want to hide it. We, were, we don't want to talk about it. We want to cover it up. And I do have to say, I felt guilty for a while, but after a while, I, I, I really thought I got away with it. But I really didn't get away with it. Here I am still talking about it. I still remember it to this day as if it were yesterday. It never went away with me. And I'm sure if I just would have gone and told my parents, hey, I got upset and I punched a hole in the wall and, and confessed that sin and that, that action, they would have been disappointed, but it would have been a whole lot worse had they discovered it, had they moved things around. That just goes to show you we didn't redecorate my room very often. But had they found that, so many years later, it would have been worse. And you see what Paul is getting at in, in our passage and what he's been articulating and what he does throughout Romans. It comes in verse 32. He has bound everyone over to disobedience. You see, I was reading an article this past week, and, and it was about a commentary on what's happening in culture with so many different things. And I sent a message to a friend, a fellow pastor, and I said, you know, what I think is missing right now in our culture more than anything is, is a doctrine, and the doctrine of, of original sin and depravity, that we're all completely and utterly broken. That so often we think that we're really better than what we are, when in fact we're much more like the fact that we just move a pennant down over something to mask the brokenness in our life and the sin in our life. We think that we are better people than who lived generations ago when in fact that they were broken people just as we are broken people. That sin does not lie outside of us, but within us and through us. Something so simple yet foundational that sin corrupts everything. And you see, when God created everything, he created it good. And then that next thing, disobedience, sin, where we wanted complete control. When we tell God, we don't want you to be at the center of our life, we want that. Sin was born into the world. And church, we have to understand our own brokenness. If you're here today and you think, man, I'm, Pastor, I'm a good person. Perhaps you might be in the world's eyes, but... But if you don't understand your own brokenness and your own depravity, then you don't understand sin. You see, not just consequences, 
because there are sins, a lowercase s, where we can make decisions and we do bad things like punching holes in walls, but really, truly, sin that speaks to our nature is the whole idea that we want to hide it. We want to mask over just as Adam and Eve, what, what did they do when God came into the garden after they had sinned? They fled. They didn't want to be in his presence and what that would cause him. And here we see, church, that we have to understand that we are all disobedient. Through the actions of one man, sin entered into the world, and it was then through the actions of another man, as Paul will go on to say, Jesus, that he is the punishment of sin. But until you realize and understand that you are completely and utterly worthless. Yet you can, how dare you? That we are broken and fallen people. That we are sinful and we are in need of a savior. We are in need of something that we cannot give ourselves. And we see the effects of sin all over our world that all have been consigned to disobedience, we see sin permeate all of life. We experience it. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I had a nickname that my grandfather gave me, and it was a name that I, that I loved. He called it me, and all my friends would call me that. But, but also, sometimes, you know, th there's positive attributes when you have a, a qualifier or you have an identifier with a name. It was a nickname, or you did something, and, and everyone knows you by that name. But so often, there's kind of more of a, a, a negative side to identifiers with a name. You know what I'm talking about? You know that one person who did something in grade school, and so now they're forever known as the person who, I don't know, had an accident in the library. And now that's how they're always remembered throughout the rest of their time in school. We see the effects of sin and the reactions and how it permeates in our lives, how we relate to other people. These identifiers that stick to us. As I was thinking about just even in Scripture, there are some who we may not necessarily see this, but it's a part of their character. We can see some of the actions that they had. We think they were perfect, but they weren't. Abraham, if you study the, the story of Abraham, Abraham sometimes was kind of a liar. He, he was deceptive at times. Jacob was a cheater. Esau, he was what? He, what, what did he do? He despised his birthright. What did David do? He was an adulterer. Jonah, the story of Jonah, he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was the Assyrian. He likely was a racist. I don't want to go to those people. They're terrible. That's how they've treated us. Before Paul, before Saul became Paul, he was what? A murderer. We see this, that he was there and gave approval at the murder of Stephen. You see, once there's an association with a name because of an action or behavior, it seems like it always sticks with them, doesn't it? Sometimes that's a positive thing. It could be a good thing to have this name associated with you. But sometimes associations can be really negative. They carry the weight of sin, don't they? 
And I was reminded of Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter, where Hester Perrin is forced to live with the constant reminder of her own sin. And her community would not let her forget the actions that she had with this illegitimate child. She had to have what? A scarlet A forever to be worn on her so that everybody would know of her actions and the sin that she had committed. It's also a commentary upon society, too, that that guilt and shame play such a, a powerful role that when someone does something, we always never move past what that person has done. They are forever remembered and marked as having a scarlet letter to them, whatever it might be. But as I think about the life of Jesus and what he's done, and he sees someone in a very similar situation to this woman who had to carry around a scarlet letter with her, what do we, what do we see Jesus do so often? You see, Jesus went into the house of one, as Matthew's gospel says, Simon the leper. Either Jesus healed him at one point or he had been cleansed, whatever the case might have been, but Jesus went into a leper's house. Now, he likely didn't have leprosy at the point, but I could imagine there are those who, if you even had leprosy, you wouldn't want to go back to that person's house. The stereotypes and the possibility that you could contract what that individual had. But yet Jesus was there. There was also the woman at the well. We don't know the woman's name, and so the Bible describes her as this person who was at the well. But could you imagine with me for a moment, as everyone knew in her community, oh yeah, she's at the well. It's noon, and she's there by herself. But Jesus didn't just see her that way. There was another woman, just like that in Nathaniel Hawthorne's book. What? We describe her as caught in adultery. John's Gospel tells that story in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And that woman then is brought forth before Jesus and laid at his feet. And they say, look, we know what the law says. She's to be stoned to death. And Jesus, knowing it was a trap, because also there was the man in this story. They just bring a woman when they were supposed to bring both of them. But they didn't. They only brought the woman been caught in this terrible thing and and they're asking and Jesus demanding of him what, what are we going to do what are you going to do Jesus what are you going to do and Jesus does the most Jesus thing he probably could do is he starts writing something on the ground and everyone I'm sure is just baffled what's he doing what's he writing he writes a little bit then all of a sudden he he gets up after they continue to press him for an answer, and he says, let anyone who is without sin throw the first stone. And then the text goes on to say that the elders began to fall away one by one. Sometimes it seems the longer you live in life, the longer you realize how broken you are. 
they filed away one by one by one. And then Jesus asked the woman a question. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No. And Jesus says, then neither do I. Now the next part is really important because Jesus just doesn't stop right there. He doesn't say, well, neither do I condemn you. He says, go and what? Sin no more. Come again. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus, as we talked about last week and the weeks leading up to this, that he does take sin serious, that it is a very serious thing and that he has to deal with it in such a way that the only way that sin can be dealt with is by Jesus taking it upon himself because he is a holy God. We can't look upon sin. And here we see Jesus taking a woman who is supposed to be condemned to death. He doesn't look at her as just another person who committed adultery. looks upon her with mercy and love. And he tells her to go and sin no more because you see, when you encounter Jesus, he doesn't want to keep you where you are, but he wants to transform you. He wants to change you. And just as our text says that all have been consigned to disobedience so that he what? That he may have mercy on them all. Oh, mercy is that. Mercy is that thing where he doesn't take what we've done and throw it in our face. You see, when Jesus sees us, he doesn't just see a woman caught in adultery. He sees her as a child of God. When he looks upon me, he doesn't see me as Kevin the wall puncher, but as Kevin the beloved child of God. Because when you receive Christ, when you put your faith in him, you are no longer held to and defined by the state of your brokenness, but you then become a child of God. When you receive the mercy of God through faith in Jesus, you can't help but just stand back in awe and wonder. Who would have thought when Paul was writing this? there was an individual who I'm sure had great shame and remorse for his prior life. Here was a man who now was the greatest proponent of the gospel, yet what was he in his prior life? A murderer. Dragging Christians away, taking them to jail to be killed. I mean, think about that. And what God did with Paul. When Paul met the risen Jesus, his life was forever changed. He was no longer Saul, the murderer, but he now became Paul, the beloved child of God. And how much more our church would have to be when we receive the gospel, when we put our faith in Jesus, something truly special happens. And as our text says, Paul alludes to and says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given the gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him all are all things. To him be glory forever. Paul, just at this point, as he concludes 9 through 11, has to just pause and say, you know what? The way God has orchestrated this whole thing, I really can't, can't just sit back and just sit there and say, my goodness, this is just beautiful. He is truly in awe. And there's a difference between when you admire something and you're truly in awe of something. When I admire something, I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And with the right skill set and the right knowledge, I could build something like that. You know, maybe I think of myself more highly than I should, but if I just knew how to do this, if I was an, an electrician, I could create something like that. I just need the right skill set and the knowledge. And I admire someone's work in doing that, but I, I could do that, I think. But when we stand in awe of something, we're completely, our breath is taken away. There's no way that I could create something this powerful, this beautiful. When I was in Alaska a few years ago, we were on a hike at the end of this mission trip, and we were able to go see this glacier up there. And it was about a seven-mile hike to the top of this glacier, and we look out, and all you see is this glacier, just beautiful, white, sparkly images and, and mountains in the background. And when I got to the top, I just stood there and say. This is one of the most breathtaking things I've ever seen in my life. It's not just admiration, but it is all that I could never in a thousand years create something like this. And that's what Paul is doing at this point. In relation to how God has worked and chosen to work in the world through Jesus. That he's able to step back in awe and wonder. And while he may not understand all of us, why some of his fellow brothers and sisters are rejecting Christ, but he is stepping back and saying, God, you are good. And I will glorify you even when I don't understand because who am I? Could have I done something even this good? Paul knows that he could not. Last week, Ashley and I were talking to a dear friend that we um, went to church with when we were in Pullman. And as we were transitioning out of Pullman, she transitioned to a foreign country to go be a teacher. And she's been over there now a couple years, and we've been able to stay in contact with her. And she has been able to get involved in a faith community in this foreign country. And it's just right now for internationals, and there's some um, other people that can come be a part of that. But, but she told us a story. And I couldn't help but think about this passage and truly the awe and wonder of God's plan for the world, particularly his redemptive purposes for the world. Is that here was our friend who now is going to be in this foreign country for almost four years and possibly even longer. But through her teaching at this school, she became friends with another American. And through countless conversations and invitations and getting to know them in your personal life and in your work life, but also our friend began to invite her friend into her spiritual life, inviting her to her faith community, her church. 
She didn't believe. She, in fact, she was really would have described herself as agnostic. Living a life completely set apart from what God wants for us. And she was telling us this story that she received a message from her friend a few weeks ago. She received a late night text and said, I believe in Jesus now. I believe in Jesus. I have lots of questions still, but, but I believe in Jesus. Now, who could orchestrate something from our perspective when we were leaving Pullman and, and she was going to this other place and other friends were dispersing? But now, two, three years later, through an interaction she would have with a friend, that another girl from America would come to know Christ to believe in the gospel and have to travel all this way for someone to hear the gospel. And when she told this story, I just couldn't help but, Lord, we don't have an inkling about what you're up to in the world. And sometimes we can't even get out of our own way. But thankfully, because of your grace and your mercy and your love for the world, that you continue your redemptive purposes in spite of us tripping things up at times. And that at the end, that you long to work through us. If we open ourselves up to be used by that. And that's what our friend did. She opened herself up. She was faithful to where she was to see the Lord working. And when that takes place, we can't help but just, just step back in awe and wonder. But awe and wonder is the power of the gospel. To break into someone's life, to transform it, to change it. All of them consigned to disobedience so that we may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. When you rest in God's redemptive purposes, his redemptive purpose for the world, we have the opportunity to participate in God's work. And when we participate in God's work, we glorify God. That's what Paul was doing. He was being used by God to fulfill his purposes for the world. And when we become vessels to be used by God, we bring glory to God. Because then it's not about me. It's not about Sam. But it's about Jesus. Church, when we leave this place, may we glorify God. May we participate in his redemptive purposes in all that we do. May we be bold in opening ourselves up to what the Lord wants to do through us. So that the gospel can be made known east and high. And so that the gospel will be made known to the world beyond. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. 
We thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for our sins, for not holding us to our sin, our transgressions, Lord. But as your word says, you remember them as far as the east is from the west. God, I pray, Lord, that in this time that we glorify you, that we step back in awe and wonder and marvel at how you are working in our lives. Lord, we trust you. Every word is calling. 